Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about books by, for, and with Vermont educators. In this episode, we own an oversight. On this show, we are dedicated to breaking down systems of inequity in education. We administer flying kicks to the forehead of intersectional oppression. But we haven't yet touched on disability. So this episode, we fix that as we chat with Dr. Winnie Luby, who coordinates the Graduate Certificate in Disability Studies at the University of Vermont. Dr. Luby also identifies as a person with a disability, which is important, listeners, because the rallying cry of disability justice has long been, nothing about us without us. So we're here, we're clear, and we're talking about care work. Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Pietsma Samarasina. Let's limber up those kicking legs, folks, and talk about how disability, too, is an equity issue. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is Vermont Ed Reads. Let's chat. Thanks for joining me, Winnie. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, Yes, so my primary um, function, I guess, is I work at UVM as a lecturer in disability studies and also um, in foundations. And then I'm a coordinator for um, a program under the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion. And I've been working there about four or five years. I'm so excited to have you with us to talk about this subject. Um, One of the things I've become aware of recently is um, these two schools of thought about how we talk about people with disabilities or disabled people. Do we use identity first language like disabled person or do we use people first language like people with disabilities? And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think um, from what I've absorbed, I think it's kind of context specific. Say if you're talking to an individual who chooses to identify as an autistic person, that's the language you use when you're talking with them. But say if you're talking to, I don't know, government official or somebody else like that, the politically correct thing to say now is person with a disability. So that's the language that you would use. Um, But then say if you're within an activist circle, you might say disabled people, disabled person. So it really kind of requires us to be deep listeners um, to figure out what exactly might be the appropriate thing to say in that moment. I really appreciate um, something I've heard from other people I've had on the podcast as well. This like ask people, ask people how they want to be referred to. And um, I think we had Judy Dow, who's an Abenaki um, scholar on, and she said, you know, we we talked about, do people want to be referred to as indigenous or Native American or Indian or, and she said, ask them and, and think about tribal affiliations and things like that as well. And so it's really helpful for you to frame that again, ask people how they want to be referred to. Um, uh, Thank you for that. Um, So this book, and so our author frames um, access, disability access in this way, access as service begrudgingly offered to disabled people by non-disabled people who feel grumpy about it. 
And she wants us to shift to a different definition of, of access, to access as of a collective joy and offering we can give to each other. And I was just really um, inspired by the move from one to the other and, um, and what it might take for us as educators, as schools, higher ed and K-12 and pre-K-12 to embrace this shift as a challenge, to move from begrudgingly uh, giving people access and being grumpy about it to creating opportunities for collective joy. Hmm. Yeah, I think I like that a lot because um, you have to be creative to do that, right? If you yourself uh, don't identify as a person with a disability or disabled, you might not know what people need. And if you want to include everybody, then you actually have to care about them as a human being before any of the other stuff. Um, so I'll say, for example, with my students in my classes, I've had quite a few students who had disabilities and had accommodations and they were kind of shy to share what they needed with me. But on the first day I say, well, you know, considering what we're talking about, it's important to me that you feel you have access to, to, um, you know, the readings to, uh, we watch films, all that stuff. So if something's not working, you have to tell me so that we can, we can make it more inclusive. What I'm hearing from you, Dr. Luby, is that um, we need to be informed by others what they need and embrace that information, moving it from, I guess I have to ask you what you need to make this work from you to like, I really need you to help me help you learn. Exactly, exactly. And um, I think about, so K to 12 schools, I can think about, I can imagine I can probably even place myself back when I was a school librarian and thinking, oh, we're going to go on this field trip and then realizing it's not going to be accessible to the kid who has a mobility issue, say. And then instead of begrudgingly say, well, I guess I can't do that field trip, finding ways to create this collective joy in how do we make sure that everybody is able to have fun. Right. Right, exactly. I think an important part of that too is the modeling that you'd be doing for that student and the other ones. So say that student, um, you know, over the course of their lifetime, they can take in a lot of negative messages, whether that was an educator's intention or not. Um, they might feel like they're too much trouble or they're not being included because of their disability. Um, so it's modeling for that student that yes, you're an important part of the class, and also for their peers in that this is how you work with people and you include them. You don't just say, well, today you're just gonna watch a movie at class in somebody else's classroom, but more we care that you're here. That's a beautiful thing to think about the modeling, not just for the student um, with a disability, but also for the rest of the class about what it means to be a community, hmm. what it yeah. means to take care of each other. Yeah. So the, the other thing um, that our author really gets at that I found really interesting is this idea that, um, that when the disability rights movement started, it really invisibilized um, people who were, I'm actually gonna read her words because she says it so well. The disability rights movement simultaneously invisibilized the lives of peoples who live at intersection junctures of oppression, disabled people of color, immigrants with disabilities, queers with disabilities, trans and gender non-conforming people with disabilities, people with disabilities are, who are houseless. 
And she asks us to notice that ableism is intertwined with white supremacy and colonialism. And I'm gonna just confess here that um, I've been doing a lot of work over many years to think about my privilege, but I, ableism is something I've been able to ignore for a really long time. It's something I've really recently been thinking, been considering is where ableism shows up in me and in my life. And so I really appreciated the way she sees these as intertwined systems. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. Um... I would say it gets me thinking about what do we consider normal, right? In our in our broad culture, what do we call normal? When we turn on the television, what's a normal family? What's a normal person look like, right? And so um, I talk about race in this way too, that if the only messages you're taking in is one kind of person or people, and that leaves out a lot of other people. <laughs> and so questioning the things that you're taking in and the things that you're um, assuming, I suppose. Um, and I would say too that it's important to kind of take the shame away from that because without that input, without somebody consciously saying to you in school, this is what ableism is, right? Or unless you're, um, you know, before now, if you didn't really feel the need to actively seek it out, of course you wouldn't know, right? Um, right. Right. So the idea is that, um, you know, it comes to your consciousness and then you're aware of it. And then you're also kind of, um, to me, it kind of opened up the door to lots of other things I hadn't thought about before. Um, that the, the analogy I can think of is, you know, the Matrix movie where there's a blue pill and a red pill or something like that. And the guy says, you can take this pill and, and learn what the world is really like or you can take this one and just stay with the way it is, right? And so I feel like once I've been exposed to oppression of any kind of other people, it's opening myself up to understanding other people rather than just staying kind of where I'm comfortable. Mm. It makes me think about, um, you know, an increasingly problematic thing about our society is how segregated we are from people unlike ourselves. And we see that politically, right? We see that um, in terms of racial segregation. Um, we see that in terms of um, uh, uh, communities where there are lots of queer folks and communities where there aren't. Um, and then we also see that in terms of ability, right? That um, because of the way our societies are organized, I don't currently have a friend in a wheelchair. Um, I, I do have a friend with mobility issues who considers themselves uh, themselves disabled, but um, I have to really seek out perspectives um, of people who are not able-bodied, who are not like me, and our world makes it harder and harder to do that. Yeah, I would say, well, mass our mass culture does, right? Our movies that are blockbusters. <laughs> The ones that feature disabled people are always people who are kind of helped by somebody able-bodied rather than having their own agency, right? Um, I think it's, I don't think in and of itself, it's a bad thing to seek things out, you know, to, to listen for. Like, I learned so much in reading this book. Um, I actually got it when I went to um, the Disability Intersectionality Summit in 2018, first time I went. 
And um, Leah was a speaker there. She actually, her book was, had just come out and she was reading a chapter from it. And just being in that talk and in that environment, I thought people can actually make the world more accessible if they really want to. I mean, I hadn't seen such accessibility in my entire life. I mean, there were like these, uh, these great badges where you could choose um, uh, a color, green, yellow, or red. Green meant you were open to having random conversations with people. Red meant, please don't talk to me. Yellow meant eh, maybe, depends, right? So you're respecting a person's kind of social anxiety in that moment. There were pins that say, you know, here are my pronouns. You wouldn't have to necessarily announce it. Here it is on my, my chest. There were... Um, there were live captions, which I'd never seen before, where in that moment, somebody's typing in a large screen um, what's being said. Um, there was somebody who actually opened up the um, event, <clears throat> acknowledging that um, the college that we were at, we're at MIT, that it had been placed on ancestral lands, right? So owing, you know, giving respect to that piece. I mean, all of these things had been thought through very purposefully, very carefully. And there was even like a, a room where, you know, if you were completely overwhelmed with everybody who go and draw and have quiet time, right? I mean, just, they thought of everything. And I, I was really, I thought, why can't everything be like that? It's not that hard. <laughs> if I really thought about it, it's not that hard. Well, so two things come up for me is one is I'm probably just thinking about using myself as an example again, right? Like I have lots of friends of color. I have lots of friends who are different than me in different ways, but maybe I'm assuming I'm making assumptions about who they are and, and um, our world makes it hard sometimes for people to um, share their disability or to write like without making it complicated. Because if, for example, if I had a disability, I might not want to share it because I don't want people to feel sorry for me or to pity me or to feel like they had to do things for me or to assume I don't have agency. Mm. Yeah. But th those stereotypes themselves get in the way and the stereotypes I hold that everybody's like me also gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, for myself, my own experience, I mean, I'm disabled, um, I use a chair sometimes, uh, sometimes not, but I do catch myself um, in these ableist moments where I've internalized a lot of negative messaging to say, if I want to be seen as competent at my work, I can't share that, you know, I feel sick today. Or if I want to be seen as a strong and not lazy person, I have to leave my chair in the car and exhaust myself rocking around the grocery store. I mean, you you, um, you internalize a lot of messaging, whether people mean it or not. Um, you don't want to be treated differently. You don't want people to kind of talk down to you because they think somehow that's helpful. I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, it makes it, it's hard to feel like you can share who you are um, with the broader public. But then I've also found that on those days when I'm feeling brave and um, I just don't want care what other people think <laughs> those are the best days when I can just kind of let that go and just do what I need to do without thinking about it mm, I really appreciate that thank you so much for sharing your personal experience in that way do you have advice for someone like me we're going to get back to the book but do you have advice besides reading this book for someone like me who's really working their edges around their own ableism and trying to be um to learn more I would say reading um, personal narratives 
So things that people have written or expressed about themselves, performances, whatever it is. And there's lots of that out there um, where they talk about their life's path. Um, and then you can see the great variety in what people have been through. You know, it could be a lot of intersectionality there with like, um, you know, socioeconomics, race, um, where they lived, language. Um, you can see kind of the huge variety in what the disability experience can look like. And so then for myself, at least, the more I read, the more curious I am about other people and the less I assume that I know anything about them, which also is could be scary and intimidating and maybe you feel like you're going to make a mistake. At the same time, making those mistakes is, you know, like Leah talks about, real disability justice is messy. It's not like everything goes just so. <laughs> Yes, I loved that section of the book. And what you're making me think about is for me, especially, but I think for a lot of people, reading is a real act of empathy and reading um, own voices stories by people with disabilities is really helpful to building empathy and understanding about what the world's like for someone who's different than you. Right. It creates what Rudine Sims Bishop calls um, a window, a window into somebody else's experience, or even a sliding glass door where you can really have empathy and sort of step into their um, experience. Yeah. Yeah. I found that the stories, people's personal stories are what sticks with me when I try to think about what am I going to talk about around disability and justice and, and inequality. I think about the individual people that I've met or read about. Yeah. Well, the other thing that Leah shares, our author Leah shares, is um, this acknowledgement that the gains made in disability justice have been largely on the shoulders, on the through the work of um, of multiply marginalized disabled people. So, um, queer, black, and brown um, people with disabilities have really led the way, and it it made me think about. Um, what that might like look like in our educational institutions. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of a say that saying, nothing about us without us is for us. About being um, not doing for, but being in solidarity with. I guess my question, if I can formulate one, <laughs> is that, um, is what does that look like in, in educational institutions? What does that look like for people when they want to engage? We're gonna to get to the messiness of disability justice, but what does it look like to be um, shoulder to shoulder with instead of trying to um, make change for? I think for me, it starts with um, respecting the agency of that other person, um, seeing them as, you know, having a complete other life that has nothing to do with me. And that my work as an ally would be to not stand in the way, you know, not speak for anybody, not do anything for them, but um, offer myself as somebody who is there if they're needed, right? <laughs> I can be um, a gatekeeper in a positive way where, um, for example, I've um, the last couple years of my job, I've a lot of, I've gotten a lot of cold calls and emails from folks who are looking to work in this field. And those uh, messages have been coming from 
other BIPOC folks who are disabled. And I thought, wow, that means that I have a really important role in playing right here. Like, even if I can't directly do something for them or open a door for them, that they see me as somebody who could possibly be somebody they could talk to about, you know, their future career goals or anything like that is a really powerful, important kind of role that I can play. Um, and so I think, you know, teachers, um, in my experience with, I have four kids and three of them have disabilities. And so my kids, when they had the most successful time they had in school was when their classroom teacher really respected who they were as people. Um, and the child, my, my child felt that respect, really. I mean, it wasn't like <laughs> they really felt that the person cared about what was happening for them. It wasn't grudgingly given. Right, right. And kids can tell when you're faking it. I mean, you're trying to just be nice and you're not genuinely caring about how they're feeling in that moment. Um, so I think like listening to parents, especially parents from marginalized groups about, you know, they're the experts on their own child, right? And as that child grows up, they're going to need to learn how to advocate for themselves. And so encouraging that, um, you know, helping them to pull that out and say, this is what I need. I need help. Um, I think a lot of messages kids get in school is that they should need to ask for help. Mm. I have so many follow-up questions, but I, I think uh, just returning to the book, you reminded me of a section of the book. Um, where Leah talks about asset framing versus deficit framing. And, um, you know, this is, this is a concept that crosses beyond ability and disability. Gloria Ladson-Billings um, has told us for a long time that one of the most powerful things we can do for our learners is to see them with an appreciative lens, to see their strengths and skills and not focus just on deficits and struggles. And we know that's a huge lever for equity. It's a huge part of being culturally responsive in the classroom. And I really still hear um, students with disabilities discussed with a deficit lens a lot. And, um, and the author writes, able-bodied people are shameless about really not getting it, that disabled people could know things that the able don't that we have our own cultures and histories and skills, that there might be something that they could learn from us, but we do and we are. And what you just said about um, your children's experience in the classroom and your own experience as a scholar made, made me think about the shift towards an appreciative lens for people with disabilities. And I, I'm, I wondered if you had any insights to share with us about how that happens or what that looks like. Um, well, again, it's, it's seeing the whole person, right? That um, uh, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day about how in one way or another, you could have an impairment, right? Like needing glasses means that my eyesight isn't perfect. If you look at it that way, everybody has a little bit of something that isn't perfect, right? There is no perfect. An impairment in becomes a disability when the environment is not there to support you and what you want to do or what you need to do, right? There's not something inherently wrong with a person because they have a disability. There's something wrong in the environment, in the social attitudes that they have to 
absorb and kind of do something with. Um, some friends recently recommended a podcast that I listened to, um, and I'm not going to remember the person's name, but I'll put a link in the transcript. It was an on being podcast. It was about asset framing. And the idea of asset framing really was what, what is this person's aspiration and what's the obstacle to that? So instead of seeing them as the obstacle, what are the obstacles or them as the problem? What's the thing they want to accomplish and what's the thing getting in the way of that? And so that removes the, the problem from the person to the environment, just like you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 but there's a, this other side of it too, which is that there are things we can learn, really big things we can learn from people with disabilities because of their experience of the world. So it's not just that we don't see them as a deficit, but also that we see their assets and their strengths and the things that they can teach us. Do you have examples? Do you have um, ways people might um, think about what they can learn, the, the, what the author calls the cultures and histories and skills and um, um, the ways that we might tap into that and open ourselves up to learning from people with disabilities? Gosh, well, one way, I guess, is to, um, uh, I know a state organization, uh, the Vermont Center for Independent Living, They've had public forums around different topics. And so one might be, you know, healthcare access, um, like something, um, something like that. And so inviting people with disabilities to come and share, this is what's happening for me. This is what I've had to do to work, work my way around that. Um, and it can be so, gosh, it's just, it's hard to describe, um, especially with like state institutional things. I think she mentions like um, social security and disability insurance and all that kind of stuff. Um, disabled folks have a lot of that in common. Um, and I think, well, again, listening to people <laughs> and their own personal experiences, I mean, just, just really paying attention, not just saying, you know, that person's just complaining or oh, they're, you know, hypochondriac or, oh, it can't be that bad. You know, like I think people of color hear that a lot. Um, very similar um, messaging. I think it has to be, um, there has to be a willingness to, to realize that you don't know everything. I think teachers are hesitant to say when they don't know or they're not sure or they made a mistake. Um, I think you can start there. Mm, I really appreciate that. I think for me, one of the like tension points is, so I'm gonna use Outright Vermont as an example. Sure. One of the programs that Outright Vermont offers schools that I think is really powerful is they have queer kids come and sit on a panel and answer questions and talk about their experience in schools. Um, they used to, I imagine they still do, but when I was in a the, in the, in the school, they, you know, we had them come and it was really powerful pe for people. The tension for me is about like, it's not really their job to educate me. And so how do we learn from and with without expecting people with disabilities or people of color, queer folks to do the work for us? So there's a real tension for me about like being open. And I think that's why your, your suggestion earlier about seeking out personal narratives that people have written, seeking out books like this one is really helpful, right? Because that's out there and I'm not asking people to do additional labor. 
Um, and so I guess I'm just wondering, how do you grapple with that tension, the both and of like, I want to learn from you and I don't want you to have to do a ton of work for me to learn. Like I should be doing the work. Yeah, I think, well, one thing I learned through my scholarship um, a few years ago, I did some research around culturally responsive research like how, um, you know, you might be a researcher, academic who wants to do research in a community. That community might be disabled, BIPOC, intersectional, lots of different kinds of ways. How do you do that in a way that's respectful and they don't feel exploited, right? Um, think about what's in it for them, right? Those kids that come onto a panel most likely wanted to because they want to practice speaking up for themselves, to practice self-advocacy, to practice leadership, Right. So saying, okay, if I want to learn something specific from this specific person, I have to think about, well, what is what's in it for them? Right. What is that that I really want? Is it that I'm being nosy and just want to know details about their lives? Or is it do I want this kind of mutual exchange of um, information that benefits us both equally in some kind of way? That's helpful. And it reminds me of a section of the book. We are jumping, by the way, listeners, all over this book, all over different sections of this book. But one of the sections of this book that really um, I think was most interesting to me was about, um, I'm trying to find the specific quote, was about um, mutual aid. And so um, in one of the chapters, the author talks about um, this voluntary reciprocal exchange of resources and services for mutual benefit. She goes on to say mutual aid, as opposed to charity, does not connote moral superiority of the giver over the receiver. White people didn't invent the concept of mutual aid. Many pre-colonial Black, Indigenous, and Brown communities have complex complex webs of exchanges of care. And this idea that um, I think so often uh, in our society, we have this like white savior notion or what you're talking about is like this, when you were saying earlier that there are characters with disabilities in movies say, and so often it's about this able-bodied person who comes to the rescue, right? And it totally means that, that, that in that, storyline, they're devoid of agency, right? The person with a disability is devoid of agency. And so this idea of mutual aid is more than a nod, is sort of honoring that we need each other and that in communities, we take care of each other. And I wondered if you had thought about what mutual aid might look like in an educational institution, in a school, in a community, yeah, or if you have any examples. Yeah, I can think of one example. I remember when I first started um, my doc program, there was an article we read about schools, public schools in say pre, um, pre-desegregation, right? So um, the article was saying that neighborhoods and schools kind of lost something with desegregation when kids had to be bused to different schools because before then the school had been this hub of community, right? The teachers might live right down the street. The parents would know each other. Um, the kids knew that there were adults around them that cared about their well-being. I think that there is um, a deep desire for a lot of people to feel more connection than they do um, in general. 
And I think if we can cultivate that at earlier ages in school and to say to kids, it's okay to need other people, to say to parents that it's okay to um, ask for what you need or to be, you know, demand what you need from the teachers and the principal and whoever it is, and that it's okay for teachers to make mistakes. You know, it's okay for, um, it's okay for that struggle to happen because without that, that means that we're not even trying. I really appreciate that. And so it makes me think, this book made me think a lot about rugged individualism and self-sufficiency. It made me think that um, that's something like we value as American society, right? Rugged individualism and self-sufficiency are sort of baked into how we think we're supposed to be in order to be successful. And it gets in the way of asking for help from others. And it kind of creates a culture where you're ashamed to ask for help. And recently, two things happened in my own life that's, that had me, that this book spurred new thinking about. And one is that um, um, some friends uh, had a complicated pregnancy and a baby that needed some NICU support. And, um, you know, they were so it was such a joy for me and some other friends to cook for them and provide some self-care items. You know, it's COVID, so a baby shower wasn't really an option, but we like sort of threw together this, like, here, take this and make yourselves a baby shower. And, and my job was to provide them with meals for the freezer. That was my role. I like to cook. And, um, and they were so like, really lovely in there like oh this is too much we so appreciate it and I was like really it's a joy to do it like there's reciprocity in this that I felt real joy in giving mm -hmm. so that's one example and then just the other day I got an email from somebody saying hey I'm gonna have surgery and I'm gonna need some meals and I'm gonna need some people to take me to appointments and I'm calling on you as a group of friends and here's my meal train it's the first time I've ever ex ex received a meal train from somebody who set it up for themselves. And I was like, that is the baddest thing I've ever experienced. Like that is the coolest, like most empowered thing that you set up a meal train for yourself. You're my hero. And just thinking about that, um, the power in saying, I am not a rugged individual. I'm not self-sufficient. I need people who care about me. I'm willing to ask for your help and receive it. And I know that I'm giving you a gift as well. I know that you want also to do something to help me and that um, that, that reciprocity is a gift for you. And I just, I don't know. I can't stop thinking about how that's the bravest thing that I've seen somebody do in a long time. And it made me wonder, what would it look like if we like um, kicked self-sufficiency and rugged individualism to the curb in schools and focused on creating communities of care where we could ask for and give the things um, we needed or um, that others needed? That was really wordy. Thank you for bearing with me, Dr. Luby. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think. Um, well, for me, the great place to start was to see that um, they call it the myth of meritocracy, right? That we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to be successful. And that's not the case at all, right? That that was set up by people who wanted you to work for no money and work yourself into the ground and leave the workforce if you got hurt on the job, people who don't care about you, right? So if you think about that, 
thinking. It, it doesn't serve anybody except for people who make a lots of money off of what you're doing. <laughs> right. Um, and it, and it hides, it's like hides all the privilege that people um, call on when they so-called lift themselves up by their bootstraps. Exactly. You know, this person that's a friend of my uncle gave me an internship someplace, right. Or, um, you know, there were these, uh, oh God, I could get into the whole thing <laughs> about like financially for, um, for folks of color, um, starting off with how there's generational wealth that we don't have, or a lot of our communities do not have. And so when you say you can afford to buy a house, you're buying a house with money that your great grandpa had saved. My grand grandpa worked, you know, at a railroad. He didn't have that kind of money to give me. So thinking, pulling apart all those assumptions that we make about how the world is supposed to work, I think um, kind of frees us up to be more generous and compassionate. Well, and so when I read this and started thinking about um, this, I was thinking, oh, one of the like paradigm shifts or ahas I had is that disability justice, um, I'm almost ashamed to say this out loud, but I'm going to be really vulnerable and say it out loud. Disability justice isn't an extra, an add-on. It might be the very way to pull us towards a more liberatory future. It might be, and it makes me think of Dr. Bettina Love, who says, if if you really want to work towards liberation, listen to queer Black women, right? And, And so this like sort of adds like, uh, people furthest from justice are actually the people who can help us see a clearer path to justice. Nice. Nice. I like that. Um, yeah, I think, I think um, Leah made some great points about, you know, the ingenuity that you have to have to be able to kind of survive in the world the way that it is when you have multiple marginalized identities. Um, the, uh, I don't want to say grit, that's not right the word, but um, the, I guess being comfortable with feeling out of place and pushing past that anyway, like being in my dog program, um, I, I was the only person that looked like me in my cohort and it was really uncomfortable that first semester, but then I also thought if I can get to the finish line, I can open up the door for so many other people, right? Even if they just see me, on the website and my picture that I went through the program that will give somebody kind of a, um, a boost to feel like that it that's for them as well. Well, and I know you're making a difference because a friend of mine is, um, uh, black and is taking a class with you or took a class with you (laughs) and you were the first black person he had had a class with in our doc program. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's huge for him, right? That would be huge for me too. I unfortunately am not yet taking a class with you, Dr. Luby, but maybe in the future. Um, so I think you're right about that, but it also makes me think, okay, I'm going to take this to Vermont schools, but um, it makes me think about interlocking systems of oppression of which ableism is a part. And I think that often is really easy in um, our society to pit oppressed groups against each other. And I'm gonna give you an example. In Vermont, for example, when we're talking about equity, which I talk about schools with all the time, I will often hear um, the, this, this comment, we should be focusing on poor kids because those really are the most marginalized kids. 
It's in Vermont schools. That's the comment I'll hear. That's not my words. Those are a, a paraphrase of the words I hear. And um, whew, that really gets my dander up um, because it, it's a way of glossing over or ignoring racism, um, sexism, homophobia, heteronormativity, and ableism, and the intersections of them, that just by focusing on class, we're ignoring all these things that poor, uh, poor kids might also be experiencing. And, and that's main, that works to maintain power and privilege, right? Like when we pull them apart and say, we're just gonna focus on class, we're actually not even alleviating the problems of classism because they're so interlocked and intersecting. Right, right, right. Um, well, I always, I always wonder why folks put it that way, right? Is it coming from their own discomfort? Um, I think about, uh, we call it the dog whistles you hear on in the media about when you say diversity, you mean black people, <laughs> you know, when you say urban, you mean, you know, um, these coded words that everybody in that circle would know what you mean instead of just saying what you mean. Um, I think that's where it comes from, you know, this individual kind of, well, if, if I say that it's not on the table, then it's not, and we don't have to look at it right? That I'm the leader here. And I'm saying that this thing is the most important thing. These other things don't matter um, because I don't want to look at it. <laughs> I mean, nobody would ever say it that way, but that's actually what's going on, right? That like, in my, I worked as a para long, long time ago. And I noticed the dynamics in school were that the principal wasn't in charge. It was the teachers who'd been there the longest who were in charge, right? They set the tone for the culture of the school. Um, but nobody wants to talk about that openly, that like you kind of have to pull apart. Why is it like that? Who who said it's like that? Who set the rules um, in that way and why? You've got me now visualizing this image of a knotted up ball of string. And <laughs> if we just untangle the knot that's about classism, we still got a bunch of knots, right? And often before we can even get to that knot, there are a bunch of knots we have to go through. And so seeing it as a, an interlocking system of knots, as opposed to like, oh, if we just focus on classism and people often say, well, you know, Dr. King at the end of his life was only focused on classism. And I was like, only? Hmm. Like, you know, like, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Right. And right. so I, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah, capitalism too, I think. <laughs> yes, right. yes, yes. Um, seeing the intersections of these things isn't extra. It is. It is the thing, right? It's the it's the way forward. And I think disability justice movements, as um, Leah points out, have been really led by people who are multiply marginalized in ways that see those intersections, that experience the intersections of not just um, ableist systems, but also classist, homophobic, heteronormative, uh, sexist and um, racist systems. And so they have a clear sense of how the things all fit together just based on their experience. That's what I read from Leah. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I had, um, I thought also, I'm still thinking about this person that thinks class is the only thing. Um, 
I think also that folks want to the shortcut, right? To say, this will get done faster if we just look at one thing. So let's just talk about that one thing right now. Or I think true transformative change doesn't work like that. It has to be this kind of constant chipping away, constant spreading awareness, constant self-inquiry. I mean, it's not something you just kind of get done with and then everybody's fine. <laughs> Uh, it has to be purposeful um, and connected. It just, it just has to. Yeah. But there's a, um, a scholar I really love named Vanessa Andriotti. She's from Canada. Um, and um, she uses this thing called the heads up framework. I can't tell you what each of them stands for. H is uh, hegemony. The one that always sticks with me the most is the um, easy solutions, hmm. right? And easy solutions, which I think we all want because we want to solve the problem, right? Um, are actually um, a red herring, right? Like they're often a sign that we're not actually dealing with the real problem. An easy solution is often not the, is, is almost always not the answer. And as you alluded to earlier, and as Leah talks a lot, a lot, Working towards justice is a messy, messy system. It's a messy process because these aren't simple problems that we're solving, right? And they're also not, they're systemic, but they're also the way the, the systems we live in have shaped who we are and how we show up, how we be in the world. And um, I was listening recently to a Hidden Brain episode I'll link to in the transcript about how, what happens when people, when we change, decision-making from ethics, like our moral decision-making to financial, to sort of this, which a lot of our decision-making in our current capitalist world is really financial. And it shifts the part of the brain it works. And we make decisions that are, um, we don't, it doesn't help us make better decisions. And in fact, so often the example they used is if a, a um, after school program charges you, if you um, get paid, you charges you a fine if you're late picking up your kids. And they said for a lot of people, they're just like more people were late because they felt like they could just pay the fine. So it had the opposite impact. And I think a lot about the decisions we want kids to make at school, we turn into these sort of financial decision making, right? Like through a token economy. And we say, well, you'll get a reward if you do this thing, or you'll get a punishment if you do this thing. Instead of saying, this is the right thing to do. This is the way we take care of each other. Let's be our best selves. And so, gosh, I just went on a long tangent, but my point was, I did have one, Dr. Luby, I did. Um, I guess my point was that, um, that these easy solutions often shift us into our worst selves, right? And, 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 um, and we want this quick way of fixing something when really what we need to do is grapple with, who do we wanna be? How do we want to be in this world? What kind of moral, ethical person? How do we want to show up? And I think you keep reminding me that this there's no single easy path through all this injustice. We just have to wade in and get messy. Thank yeah. you for bearing with me too. <laughs> too many reactions to that nonsense I just spoke. Oh, that was great. That was great. That was great. I'm really enjoying um how you've been processing all of this really. Um, I usually process through my own personal experience. It's how it kind of 
lives in me. So if I've personally experienced it or, or somebody close to me has, then that's the thing that I'm going to anchor myself to. Um, I, I find that, um, you know, in higher education, say, um, I just went through this whole process of, of getting my contract renewed as a lecturer. And so in that process, you're supposed to show all the things that you've been doing with your time in the last four years. You know, like the ideal is to have, you know, when you get out of PhD school, the idea is to find that tenure track job, right? Tenure track, meaning that you prove yourself over seven years, then you have this job for the rest of your life, right? They're not really concerned about what kind of work you do after that, <laughs> right? You're just gonna, you're just gonna, to, you know, work really hard to get that piece of cheese or whatever it is. And what I've found in the last four or five years is that I don't really want that cheese. I want to actually get stuff done, right? And actually getting stuff done means that I have to let go of a lot of other extraneous stuff. So for me, it's like labels, it's, it's money, it's all those things, right? Um, figuring out what really matters to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that often goes against, I mean, tenure track really is a, um, it's part of that meritocracy. It's part of a capitalist system. It's a credentialing, right? Like who did you publish enough to get tenure? Um, and so deciding that how you want to be in the world matters more. Mm-hmm. The things you, you want to accomplish matter more. Yeah, right now, right now I'm actually working on a book that is from my dissertation. And I decided that like, you know, I spent four years learning all these $20 words. Now I'm going to unlearn it so that this book can actually be read by regular people. <laughs> you know? What's your book about? Um, well, I did this great action research project um, around um, self-perception, self-esteem, social emotional learning and the arts and how um, creating inclusive learning environments for students kind of helps um, kid peer relationships. Um, it supports, you know, the um, learning of kids with disabilities where they can show what they know in lots of different kinds of ways, not just by taking tests. And then it also enriches the whole school culture to become more of a caring, open-minded, flexible kind of culture. And so, um, I talk about, well, so far I've been writing it for like three years now. Um, I spend a lot of time trying to make the research relevant to real life. Um, to, well, why is it important to understand how meritocracy works? Why is it important to understand why it's important to engage with families around their own children? Dr. Luby, your book feels like one I really have to read and want to read and can't wait to read. Uh, I hope that when it's published, you'll come back and talk to us about it on the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm hoping to be done with it before another couple of years go by. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will wait patiently until then, but the world needs your book, I think. Yeah. One of the things that um, when you, when you said the things we need to understand, like you said, meritocracy and why we need to understand these things in order to do a better job in schools, it made me think about some of the things that were really hard to read about in Leah's book. Um, And one of those was this history of ugly laws in the United States. It's really painful. And so I'm just going to quote her. She says, The ugly laws on the books in the United States from the mid-1700s to the 1970s stated that many disabled people were 
too ugly to be in public and legally prevented disabled people from being able to take up space in public. These laws were a part of a system that locked up or criminalized all kinds of undesirable people, indigenous folks, poor folks, people of color, queer folks, and disabled folks. And so it made me think about all these other laws that we don't often talk about, but that have lasting implications in our world. So it made me think about eugenics, for example, which in Vermont, as well as elsewhere, sterilized and institutionalized people considered delinquent or defective, many of them poor, indigenous, or disabled. Um, and uh, it made me think about um, other kinds of laws like redlining that, uh, you know, profited or benefited privileged white folks while denying those um, benefits or privileges to people of color who maybe also um, uh, fought in wars or, right, um, or who were um, looking to buy homes, right, uh, the same American dream. And um, I think about, and I'm sure we can name countless other um, uh, uh, laws and statutes that play out in this way that means some people have privileges or are not allowed to have privileges. In this case, the privilege was being allowed to be in public, taking up space in public, and that folks were, that it made people, able-bodied people uncomfortable. And so we, we created laws for that. And it was just horrifying to me. And I think those things still play out in schools, right? Like those, the ramifications of that still plays out in, in systems of education and the way um, students with disabilities are treated. And I wondered if you had thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, the connection I'm making with school is um, I remember not ever seeing a child with disability in my school in the 70s. I know they were there. Now I know that they were there, but then I had no idea. Um, and I wonder, uh, I get down to the, the, the real feeling behind why that's necessary. I think even though disability has been, you know, one in four people in the world has a disability, right? There's plenty of people that we know that won't ever talk about their disability um, because of the stigma involved. And I think um, uh, I think the reasoning behind that that shutting away or that pushing away is this kind of fear that life is unpredictable, that um, you know you can't control everything, you can't have rules for everything, you can't. Um, you can't control your mortality. <laughs> you can't, you know, I don't think people like that, right? They want to know that the world is exactly the way that it was when they will, you know, went to bed last night. They don't want change. I think, I mean, might be controversial to say it, but I think that's partly why folks are so, so eager to get back to normal with COVID, right? Even though statistics are showing us that we're not done with it yet. People really, 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 don't want to wear a mask. Like, <laughs> I'm like that's that's a really small, really small thing that you have to give up to benefit other people. It just, to me, it kind of gets at this fear about what you can't control, what you can't fix, um, you know, what's unpredictable about just the way the world works. Um, I think that's kind of. Um, I can't say it's good or bad. I just think it's a human tendency to, to say, um, I'm more comfortable with things that are, are, are knowable, that I understand, that look like me, that sound like me, and anything other than that really throws me off. 
you, as you spoke, um, our listeners can't see this because they're listening, but you put air quotes around normal. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and um, I really appreciate that because I think what you're reminding us is that um, with those air quotes, what I read from that, and I'll ask you if I got it right, is that um, normal is a myth, that normal doesn't exist, that normal um and in, in, in many ways, I, I took the next leap and thought, well, normal is what we use to keep the status quo as it is, and the status quo doesn't serve all people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and I, I did a podcast um, with uh, my friend Emily Gilmore about um, the end of average, which really describes why this norm reference to this norm normal really is is related to averages, right? Doesn't serve any of us. None of us are really normal, right? And so the, this notion of normal and this privileging of this notion of normal is problematic just because it doesn't it doesn't exist. It's using, <laughs> right. It's using statistics to describe people and that just doesn't work. There's a fallacy at the very heart of that. Well, it's also, it's also defining this kind of mythical ideal, right? That if you have a normal body, whatever that is, that means that you look a certain way, you feel a certain way about yourself. Like our, I think our like beauty industry is all around. I want to be that ideal, um, but it doesn't exist, right? It's keeping people's kind of um, aspirations to have the thing up. So like, say, uh, what do you call it? My grandparents used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, where, you know, you have a neighbor that gets a new pool, though you have to have a pool, they get a new car, you have to have a car. What is that all based? <laughs> right? And who's it serving other than the people who you're buying from, right? Yeah, our um, our feelings of inadequacy really do serve people who want to sell us something, right? Uh, we joke about that at my house because I'm like, why? There are certain times in my life, or certain days, <laughs> certain periods of exhaustion or frustration where some email advertisement really can get me. And I have to step back and say, I don't need that thing. I just feel bad about myself at the moment. And that thing, that shiny thing is a, is a way to, um, that I think will make me feel better, but it doesn't really. Right. right. Oh, yes. And, and, and one of the things that Leah points out in the book is that it's really short-sighted of us not to be looking for disability justice because so many of us, as we age, will experience some kind of disability. That, by the way, self-interest isn't the only reason that we should engage in disability justice, but does, she does point out that like, and you sort of allude to that too, that um, it's our, our lack of desire for change that keeps us where we are and our, our lack of understanding that we could face this or people we love, people in our own families and our own lives could face disability. It's really short-sighted of us not to, not to clear the way so that all people can take up space and be valued and, and um, be acknowledged and identified with their strengths. There's one more concept I want to talk about in this book before we um, move to close, and that's this idea of care webs. Would you, do you think you could define um, care webs? 
Um, the way I understood it was that you, I, I love how Leah talks about it, where the, it's, it's people with disabilities who are all supporting each other, right? And pulling in allies where they're necessary. Um, and not so much doing things for each other, but really just caring about what's happening with somebody else that like she talks about how isolating it could be to have a disability, right? That um, if you feel like you can't talk about it at work or, you know, you're feeling, um, you know, vulnerable around how you're treated within your family or anything like that, that it's important to have these other people who understand at least somewhat of what your life is like um, to kind of alleviate that isolation. Um, so I think that, like a great benefit is the actual, like somebody's going to help me cook and do my laundry and da, 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 da. But I think for me, the important part would be that, that social connection piece. I really appreciate that. And, um, there's a page in this book and I'll, I'll put an image of this in the transcript that says questions to ask yourself as you start a care web or collective and keep asking messy again, code word messy. Um, and so it starts with these really practical things like um, uh, who, what is the goal of your care web? Who needs care and what kind? But it moves towards these other things like how, you, how will you celebrate and make it fun? Or um, uh, what's your plan when conflict happens? Or, and this is one of my favorites, and I've talked about this in uh, other places, not around disability, but are you building in ways for disabled folks to offer care instead of assuming that only able-bodied people are carers? And I've talked about this with the book, Piecing Me Together, of who do we think gets to give and who gets to receive? And how do we create opportunities for everyone to give and receive? Because we all have something to offer and we all need each other. And so if we're just, otherwise we fall into the charity model again, right? We fall into the white savior model again of like, oh, look, I get to be the hero as opposed to mutual aid model of we're in this together and we're creating communities where there's reciprocity and where we take care of each other. Yeah. I would say um, uh, the leadership piece is important where say, you're an able-bodied person who wants to do something with disability justice where it wouldn't really start with what you think or what you feel it would start. You know, you would need to follow the lead of the folks who are most affected by this thing, right? Um, it's, it's, I guess for me, it feels like kind of obvious that that's what you would do. Um, I think because it cares, I, I care about understanding people as individuals um, in their own path. Um, and I spend a lot of time in self-reflection just because I feel very responsible to my students. What I hear you saying is that we need to center relationships mm -hmm. and that those, and, and um, the inference I'm making is that when we center relationships with individuals, we can use the knowing them and their voice and their experience to understand the problem with systems. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Did I hear you correctly when that's what yeah. I heard? Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's a section in her book where she talks about, um, what is it, emotional intelligence, where how um, folks with disabilities understand um, 
the idea of like pushing past what your limits are because there's something that you want to do or need to do. They understand that. They understand the um, the difficult conversations you have to have with whatever bureaucratic office there is that has some kind of <laughs> control over your life. They 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 get it. Um, so having those folks in your life is important to kind of keep keep your sanity to keep you kind of motivated to move forward. So that touches on, I guess there's um, one thing I wanted to really point out from the book, and it's this notion that um, of freedom dreaming. I've been thinking about freedom dreaming a lot, and um, I've been thinking about, um, uh, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and uh, Jason Reynolds point out that um, racism was created via imagination and it's going to take imagination and creativity to uncreate it or to, to, to fix it. And, um, and so Leah says sick and disabled and neurodivergent folks aren't supposed to dream, especially if we are queer and black or Brown, we're just supposed to be grateful. The, the normals let us live. And it, it makes me think about, um, what's it look like to, to, to center aspirations and dreams for all people. I guess that's also the opposite of charity. Oh, look, we're being nice to you. You get to survive <laughs> as opposed to like, what are, what are your dreams for the world? And how can those dreams help inform my dreams for the world? Yeah. Um, well, I have a, I think I have kind of an analogy that relates um, in my, I teach a class on race and racism in the United States. And the first couple of weeks, we spend time thinking about our own identities before we talk about any history, any, anything else. Um, who, what makes us who we are? Where do we grow up? What languages do we have? How important or not is religion? What's our gender identity? All those things about ourselves, right? And then connecting that with, do I do or not understand how race and racism works? Why might that be? Oh, if I went to you know this affluent boarding school where there weren't people of color, of course I wouldn't have learned very much, right? And so in that moment, you're saying, okay, I'm gonna give up control that I know everything, that I know anything about this thing, whatever it is. And then I'm going to take pleasure in having those conversations with people who have been through those things, right? Taking away the shame and the, the feeling of like, you know, I have to make up for what my grandpa did, right? Take away that and say, um, how do I learn about other people for who they are? How do I grow as myself? in what I'm learning? How do I keep learning? It's not like cultural competence is going to be this end goal because there isn't really one. There's always more to learn. I mean, I, I said, I learned so much from his <laughs> book, things that I didn't know before. Um, you kind of have to be open to that. So creativity requires being able to say, you don't know, being vulnerable, taking, you know, um, following the lead of other people who wouldn't necessarily get the lead usually, right? Being willing to kind of just upend the way you think things work to make it something else. You can't, you can't follow the same playbook. You have to completely throw it out the window and create a different one. Oh my gosh, that was so helpful. What you just said, 
That's such a like helpful way to wade into the mess. And um, although I have a gazillion other quotes and ideas from this book, my last question for you was going to be, what advice do you have for teachers who want to, you know, join the disability justice fight, if you will, um, and celebration, <laughs> the, the, all the things that disability justice is, what steps do you have for them to wade into that mess a little bit to start to get messy around their thinking? And, and you just sort of nailed it with that, but I'll leave it for you to add any other advice you have for teachers. Educators. Yeah, I would say um, beyond, you know, self-reflection, right, and talking to people with disabilities, talking to kids about what they want, right, what they need, talking to their families about their experiences. Beyond that, there's tons of resources around, you know, universal design for learning, where you're going to learn about colors. There's lots of different ways to do that, right, through music, through sound, through tactile, um, you know, not just reading, you can do lots of different things. So for a teacher to kind of see that as a creative challenge, a positive creative challenge, where if I want every single person in my classroom that I don't know everything about them, right? If I want to have them feel included and want to come to school, what does my classroom have to look like? I love that. It reminds me of a phrase we sometimes use at the Tarrant Institute called planning for the margins. Like start, don't start with the middle, what most kids need, start with the margins and plan with them in mind. I'd love to embed some of your resources and ideas about universal design and other things into the transcript. Dr. Luby, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you for bringing this book to my attention. I learned so much. I have so much learning left to do. I just so appreciate this conversation with you yeah, and all, you. all of the expertise you bring. And I cannot wait to talk about your book with you. Thank you. Thanks. I really enjoyed this too. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Dr. Winnie Luby for appearing on the show and talking with me about care work, dreaming disability justice. If you're looking for a copy of Care Work, check your local library. Special thanks to our fabulous audio engineer, Audrey Holman. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. 